morning for this bonus episode of the Read Indeed podcast. Today, I've got some interview content for you. I said at the outset of the podcast in the trailer that I didn't want to tie this in a neat little bow just yet. So what I thought I would do today was share the audio version of an interview I was a part of and previously put out on the YouTube channel. So that interview um, is hosted on YouTube under my Imposter Phenomenon playlist. So some interviews, podcasts, seminars I've been putting out in support of my forthcoming book, You Are Not a Fraud. Um, And so in that playlist is the interview that I'm playing for you today. And that was kindly hosted by Dr. Lucrezia Cazuli. Uh, Etia, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, not butchering it too much. Uh, Dr. Cazuli is a lecturer in the Hunter Centre for Entrepreneurship at the University of Strathclyde. And during 2020, I was an Enterprise Fellow in the Hunter Centre, so I had a part-time post, uh, helping with some of the uh, entrepreneurial business-focused teaching based on some of my early-stage experience in uh, creating and, and running a small business. Um, and Etsia runs this really fantastic module in her course called Mindset Lab. And when I first met colleagues in the Hunter Center and heard about Etsia's Mindset Lab module, it caught my attention right away because it was pitched as being something for uh, the uh, MBA cohort that are towards the end of their degree. It was uh, a module set up around all of the mind management tools, um, as is hinted at in the name Mindset Lab, but all those tools that uh, go around the core elements of setting up a business, resilience, uh, persistence, grit, imposter experiences, self-doubt, and a lot of those what you might traditionally have called softer skills, the emotional intelligence that that drives someone or a business of people through uh, to their ultimate goals. Like how how can you navigate the the stresses, the strains, the struggles that throw up the hurdles en route to the goals that you want to achieve, be that creation of a business or, or some other venture? So in Etsy's Mindset Lab, um, part of my contribution to it was the interview that you're about to hear. Um, Etsy and I talk about uh, novelty, the unknown, imposter experiences, uh, and my struggles and experiences with having multiple interests in different fields and what the pros and the cons are of, of such an approach. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this bonus episode and I hope you take something away from this interview between myself and Dr. Etzia Kazuli. Today we are with Dr. Mark Reed. Uh, Dr. Mark Reed is co-founder of safety culture and accident readiness company Preside Safety. Mark, in addition to this, is also um, an enterprise fellow at the Hunter Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Strathclyde. So welcome, Mark, and thank you for agreeing to the interview. 
Thanks very much, Etza. It's my pleasure. May I begin by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. Um, so the setting for this talk is quite appropriate. I was born and raised in Glasgow, as my dulcet tones will give away. Um, still living there, still uh, primarily working in Glasgow, living with my wife and, uh, and young daughter at the moment. I did, professionally speaking, I did both my original degrees at Strathclyde. So I came up through the chemistry department, first did a master's there, and then stayed on for my PhD. And uh, a large part of my professional life has been and remains within the hard physical sciences and chemistry in particular. Um, but it was through that path that things more recently led to what you mentioned at the start, and that is working on this company pre-site safety. So through chemistry, it's not all just about the magic of making the pills and potions of the future and all the materials that we take for granted, but on doing those things on a large scale, taking them from the teacups where you begin to invent the reactions up to a swimming pool-sized reactor that can make enough of the chemicals to distribute to society, there's a lot of really risk-laden activities on that path from the teacup to the swimming pool. And safety is a massive concern. And the industry itself is unfortunately peppered with stories throughout history of when these activities have gone drastically wrong and hurt a lot of people on a very large scale. And without going into the details of what those were, the, the whole reason I started it was only partly because I'd read so many stories in my own field, but also more personally because my father had been involved in one such accident in a sister sector, that being oil and gas rather than chemical manufacturing, which is where most of my work is. Unfortunately for me, he, he, uh, he was in an accident, but he came home. And my other reading had told me that that's not always the case. So I felt very fortunate, but also was in a rather unique situation of having learned from him and found out how it can affect just an individual over the longer term. So I wanted to use my scientific background and this perennial challenge of safety and chemistry together with my personal experience to develop a new service that can help people see the challenges of safety in a new way to bring data together for companies to make decisions on um, how to upgrade their safety practices and also to investigate new technologies that can improve training beyond what it has been traditionally. So it says, summarizing that, very much a Glasgow boy. I've seen the world, but I'm very much rooted here personally and professionally. And having come up through chemistry, you know, having spotted one major challenge within that sector, that's led me to a whole world outside of academia and entrepreneurship that I would never have seen had I not been curious enough to take a calculated risk, which I think is important for a lot of people to understand outside the specifics of my own experience and context. And of course, running a startup it's quite a departure from being an academic. Yes. 
How do you navigate those different environments with different role expectations and different ethos? Yeah, it's a very important, a very challenging question. Had you asked me that a few years ago when I was first dabbling with the idea of doing something alongside or even outside of academia, I, I wouldn't have a, had a clue how to answer. The short answer is to find mentors. If you're balancing, doing a balancing act of work within and outside of academia, there will be people working in those very different worlds who know the rules of the game and who have been there, seen it, done it, longer, better and bigger than you have. So finding a mentor is quite a common piece of advice you'll hear from many people. But finding mentors plural, I think, is what is important in this very specific case. I have mentors in academia because um, you know I still hold positions within academia, still looking to publish original research um, and come through that particular system with those particular metrics. But then taking the leap into entrepreneurship and looking at startups, spin-outs and the like, that's a very, very different game to academia with different metrics, different drivers, and perhaps most importantly, an entire different network of people who see the world differently from the network I originally came from and grew up with. And so that's why mentors plural is important because the first mentor within one world will not be able to tell you the same things of someone else working in the other world. So in moving into the startup space, I was fortunate enough and primarily through Strathclyde channels to begin with, to find a few really seasoned, very knowledgeable mentors in entrepreneurship who not just help me navigate and learn the ropes of what it means to be an entrepreneur, learning about finance, learning about corporate governance, et cetera. But having someone detached enough from my original professional upbringing to really, when my assumptions were complete nonsense, I could paint that with a lot more blue language as we have done in mentorship conversations in our company. But those frank conversations are entirely needed and having mentors, I think, is the most effective way to do that, to see clearly and to learn things that otherwise seem so scary that they're too far out your scope to ever begin in the first place. So I think, among many other things, mentors, plural, if you're working in more than one space is absolutely essential. You're doing work on imposter syndrome. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. So before I, I say the origin story of that, linking to my last point of working in different worlds in academia and in business. This point on imposter syndrome, for anyone who knows me or who has just listened to my introduction to myself, it seems to be a confusing, a, a confusing track for me, if you will. It is not really anything to do with chemistry. It's not really anything in particular to do with safety or working in high hazard industries. This is a third entity, a third interest of mine. And without getting too deep into the weeds at this point, this is really because I find 
many different things interesting and it's taken a long time for me to cultivate a way of putting these different interests in different mental spaces in my head so that I can explore each of them with rigor, with passion, without feeling spread too thin and without feeling an overwhelming self-doubt that I have to stick to just one area and not, not explore these other things that interest me. It's taken a while to get over that before even getting into the details of the project itself. But with that said, the whole reason I started looking at imposter syndrome, what's more technically known as the imposter phenomenon, I uh, started back in 2015, which was a big milestone in my professional career. I had just finished my PhD at Strathclyde and being very much tracked academically at that point, I was moving to a postdoctoral research post. So moving from working with one team of people in one institution to being completely transposed to another institution, that being the University of Edinburgh, to work with a different team of people on different science and with those people who I didn't know as well as the first group that I worked with. To generalize that, that's a very academic example, but the whole point is it's moving from one working environment to another one, and it was a complete unknown to me. I'd never done a postdoc and never made such a move before. And it was in that environment that I started to get these sensations of, of panic, of doubt, and a perpetual awareness that I was comparing my achievements and my knowledge to those of my contemporaries around me, other PhD students, other postdoc staff within the team I was working with in Edinburgh. And at that time, I didn't have a term for it. I didn't know what it was. It's something that I'd never really experienced in my life before, personally or professionally. But it was really starting to affect how well I could do my job. I was spending a lot more time thinking about these comparisons of me versus them rather than actually thinking about the science and the work that I was trying to develop. My mind was being constantly and, and periodically consumed by these thoughts to the point that I thought, right, something needs to be done here. And the very first thing I did from when I walked through that door in 2015 over the two years that I spent in Edinburgh was to journal the experience. I wrote it down. Anytime I went home for lunch or went home at the end of a day, and if that particular day had had one such all-consuming, doubtful experience, I would write down what happened that day. But then as time went on, more than just writing about those experiences, I would maybe write down a little paragraph around a podcast I'd listened to or a book that I had read or a conversation that I'd had that made me see things more positively, more productively and ultimately differently so that these rather new experiences that were holding me back would become fewer and further between and become more manageable because I could see them for what they were. So between that journal and between those um, descriptions of conversations and materials I'd found to manage it, that amassed a lot of writing in two years to the point that I started thinking about writing a book on that, which I'm still working on at the moment. So that journal had turned into chapters. But then those chapters called out for something new. 
and this ties back into my scientific background, I'd started to find that a lot of the evidence for this imposter phenomenon and a lot of the data was left wanting in some quantifiable dimensions. So in the process of writing the book, I've started an independent research study to look at as broad a demographic of people as possible and get them to answer questions under a, a very specific regime that puts the, these experiences of feeling like an imposter, of feeling like a fraud on a scale of zero to 100, and then complement to that of developed a more open part of this research where people aren't answering things specifically on a quantified scale, but are answering questions more openly so that we can capture a range of experiences and see what the commonalities are across a large range of individual experiences that might seem otherwise disconnected. So that's, that's the journey of it so far. It's come from a personal experience to a writing experience, to a book writing experience, and to a, a scientific research experience, that's, which will all come in to a final product together, that being a scientific report on what we've found here, but also linking back to our discussion here on entrepreneurship, my first book, which is a very different type of entrepreneurial venture. Some would say it's a solopreneur venture where you're trying to figure out how best to get that message out to the world in the form of a book. So it's of the things that I do, it's perhaps the, the newest venture. It's one that throws up a lot of doubts, a lot of procrastination, but even more excuse to find ways to fight through these things that would otherwise hold me back. And in your own experience, <coughs> imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, as you technically correctly call it, um, you describe this as something that holds you back. Are there any, you're now collecting data on this, are there ever situations where people are spurred on by their imposter syndrome? They want to fight back and they respond differently. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting complementary point. But I would argue you've said two things there. There's, there's spurring on and then fighting back. I think those are different. If we think about um, what the imposter phenomenon spurring someone on, so again, the imposter phenomenon, just to be clear, is this sensation that you don't belong where you are, typically professionally. You feel like you're going to be found out. You feel like a fraud. You don't feel as good as the people around you. You don't feel qualified. And that's it. this fear, this um, overhanging shadow that's always with you. You feel that it's just as you turn the corner, someone's going to point the finger and accuse you of being a fraud and chuck you out of the place. Where that can spur someone on is in something that is quite commonly known as the imposter cycle. You live with these uh, overhanging fears so much that you keep working yourself to the ground in order to give yourself some temporary, some temporary sense that you do belong, that you do have the right qualifications, that, that you are working as hard as everyone else. But these things are cyclical because if you start a project, you plan it, that project might start off rather well. But then you'll remember those previous times where you've had similar fears of being found out. And then you start to work really hard 
that you might also for a while on the other side of that coin procrastinate just to the very last minute. And then as the finish line approaches, you work yourself to the ground, you'll get the project over the line. It will be a success. You'll get that paper published. You'll get that investment in your company, whatever that finish line is for you. But then it becomes cyclical because it all starts again. The imposter never really stops to celebrate their successes because the fears kick in and again and the doubts creep in to say, maybe that one wasn't good enough. Maybe someone else has more such wins or bigger such wins. I need to go again. Next project, please let me continue to work myself into the ground. So it can spur you on because you've always got that fire lit under you. But it can be a double-edged sword because you can do that so much that you burn yourself out. So that's the spurring on part. The fighting back, I think, is another discussion entirely where you're starting to, as I did during that PhD to postdoc story, <clears throat> find the ways of understanding what it is that's happening to you when you have these experiences such that you can begin to recognize them and manage them. And I think manage the, managing these experiences is what relates and to your question of fighting back. Fighting back is all about recognizing what this is, as I, I had to do. Remember, back in 2015, I didn't have a term or any clue of what the imposter phenomenon was. That was a journey of finding out so that I could then manage and live with these things such that when they happened again and again, it didn't affect me as much as it ever used to. And it sounds as though, from what you're telling me, the way to manage this for you, I think we'll give it a name, to understand this imposter syndrome. Are there any other suggestions we would have for how we can learn to cope with our fears that we are not good enough in a particular task or in a particular environment? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The first big step was giving it a name, realizing that there was a body of work out there to recognize this phenomenon and place it in a context. The first thing that that did for me, as it should for anyone else who's listening to this or watching it, is realizing that you're not alone. The imposter phenomenon can be an incredibly isolating experience because quite rightly, everyone has an individual story to tell. But within that context, there is a feeling that you're the only person ever feeling that way. And from our research, we're finding that there are a lot of people out there who will never tell anyone that they feel that way. So seeing that there's that work out there, whether it's ours or the great body of work that's gone beforehand, is simply realizing that you're not alone. This is a phenomenon that can be placed in a societal context. There are others who feel this way, even although their story will be different to your own. So naming it, realizing you're not alone, these are some of the things. Other ways of uh, fighting back, to use your term, and to to place imposter phenomenon in context so that it doesn't hold you back is, for example, to think and know just a little bit about how your brain works, 
how emotions are made and how to see that as if as an outer body experience to realize what your brain is doing as the synapses and neurons fire and not just react to them in a panicked fashion, but to recognize what's happening in each occasion. So in my case, I've come across a couple of books, um, one called The Chimp Paradox, which describes some of the psychological framework for how the brain is constructed. Um, it's perhaps a little bit outdated and oversimplified now, but it, it describes in an accessible fashion the idea of the chimp brain, the other person in your head who has evolved long before you turned up as an individual and who cares about your survival, your regeneration to the next generation, eating, etc. Not really caring about anything else than those primary objectives. And the strength of that evolved beast inside your head can overwhelm the logical person that you know to be you, the person that you would place all your traits against. It's almost like there's two or maybe even three different people battling you in your head. And that can be a good accessible step into understanding how the brain works, that there will be what seem like reactionary things that go on inside your head that will make you behave one way. But when you start to read about that, you then start to recognize it happening such that you can take it in your stride and move on past it. A second book, which is a, a more modern and deeply evidenced interpretation of how the brain works and how emotions are made, is called How Emotions Are Made. And it's all about understanding the fact that your brain will operate based on predictions and based on past experience. If you don't have a past experience in your brain, there is nothing with which your brain can build a prediction of how to react in the moment. And so when you have a fear of a particular situation, more often than not, it will simply be because your brain doesn't have anything in the tank with which to build a picture of that particular situation. In simpler terms, it's a dread of or fear of the unknown. And a lot of these imposter experiences can come back to that, even although you might not feel that's what's happening at the time. These a lot of situations that lead to imposter experiences are because your brain doesn't have a category for what's going on. Your brain doesn't have any previous data with which to build a prediction of what's happening right now. And that sounds like I know a lot, but it's having read and even dipped into these books and some others on occasion that's just left behind those little triggers, those little bite-sized chunks of knowledge that which I never had back in 2015 or before then. It's things now that make me more relaxed because I know just a little bit more about how I'm wired, what these things are doing, and not holding myself to such unfair account now that I know that. And I think that's a very powerful thing that many other people can take on board. Just know a little bit about how this works upstairs and you'll place things in a much fairer context for your experience. Thank you, that's fascinating. And if I may just pick up on what you just said and link back, link into my final question to sure. you. Sure. What you just said is that your brain is most afraid when it 
doesn't have a box for something it, it encounters. So novelty and the unknown are uh, scary because we just don't know what to expect. And that's essentially very much the uncertainty that we face uh, when we start a new venture, start a new project, start right. environment, start something new. So yes. conclusion to the chat we're having today. From your own personal experience, how can we better learn to, to adapt and thrive in an uncertain environment, which we are always going to face in any walk of life, whether we are managers, whether we are entrepreneurs? Mm. Yes, another thing that's not easy, but can be done. So let's link the solution to this with what I've found through this journey of looking at the imposter phenomenon. Another thing that I'm uh, people who suffer from these feelings of being an imposter will do is put everything that had happened to them down to luck. Everything that they've achieved has not really been by their hardworking hand, but has been because the stars and the planets have just aligned out of randomness to allow them to enjoy that success. So one thing is to be able to find out when you can, as I've mentioned about mentors doing, call nonsense on when those thoughts appear. You know, it seems like the harder you work, the luckier you get. That's an old adage that you'll hear said many ways. So I mentioned luck there because there's a balance to be struck. <clears throat> what I'm not saying is to discount luck entirely. Your hard work will put you in a situation. But to get really to the core of what you're asking about leaping into the unknown for starting a business or looking at a new venture, realize this one thing about luck. Your odds of being here are smaller than throwing a ring into the ocean and a turtle swimming up between that circle from another part of the world. The odds of you being here can be put into numbers, but there are more zeros behind the unlikeliness of you being here than there is space in the room that I'm sitting. So there's luck to be celebrated in the fact that people connected by blood to you in terms of your ancestry might have died. You might have had an uncle or an auntie or a, you know, a sibling who didn't make it who died but not a single one of your direct ancestors died all of them had to survive for you to be standing or sitting where you are listening to this right now and although that sounds very simplistic and sort of cheesy motivational speech digging into that in the same way that i dug in a little bit to understanding the brain put in crystal clear context that this only happens once. And what you should celebrate is the fact that you've got a chance. As I say with my own business and pre-site safety, this could all fail tomorrow. But I will be celebrating the fact that I had a chance to do it at all. And what I would hate more than anything is if I got to my deathbed, lying there thinking, what if I'd just given that a chance? What if I'd registered the company? But I never... That pain of regret is far more painful than any failure can ever be. And so understand just a little bit about what it's taken in the world for you to be here now. 
And that I would be willing to bet will alleviate many of the fears that's helping hold someone back. Dr. Mark Reed, thank you very much. Again, my pleasure. Thank you, sir. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, head over to the website where not only will you find the written blog versions of these podcasts, you'll find my leadership blog series, the daily thought series, and information about my book on managing the imposter phenomenon. We also have even more free resources and webinars linked to the YouTube channel. So head on over to dr-mark-read.com to find out more. That's dr-mark with a c-reid.com to find out more. We'll see you again soon. Thanks again for listening.